Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Today, we decided to speak about stress, and not just stress, but about good stress and bad stress. One of the most counterintuitive things that we've mentioned in our book, The Alzheimer's Solution, is increasing your good stress. So Dean and I will elaborate on this topic today because I think it's relevant. It's the holiday seasons, and I hope you're all having a great time with your loved ones and learning and knowing the importance of perception of stress. I think this is the most important concept in health. I mean, this sounds like such a bombastic statement, but it isn't. It is, it's our perception, it, what goes into our body and how we you know, see the world around us. It's the input and the output. In every way, it affects our body. And when we get into the detail of at what levels, even at the epigenetic level, stress affects you, then we realize that it is truly the most important thing. And that doesn't even take into consideration how it affects your ability to manage other things. So we always talk about the neuro concept, nutrition and exercise and everything else. But what we have found is that at the core is stress management. And ironically, at the core of that is increasing good stress or managing stress. That becomes the most important thing. In fact, the worst thing for the brain is absence of stress. Exactly. Absence of stress is basically death for the brain. And that's when you see people who retire, who've had a very complex and a challenging life, and then they retire and they don't do anything. You see the steepest decline in cognition in that population. That by far, they're the group that actually has the greatest decline. Now, our story, we're not going to give it away right here. I mean, we have many conversations around this. Uh, we have a whole series that we will actually share with you around the concept of cavemen in LA. And that's a completely separate uh, little talk. But our understanding of stress actually started about 15 years ago when the two of us first met. Right. Initially, I was in Bethesda, Maryland, and NIH, one of the most educated, actually the most educated region in the country. And I saw patients and I had many gatherings and friends and quite a social life. And ironically, in this incredibly well-to-do community and a highly educated community, stress was absolutely overwhelming. It was palpable. I mean, when they say you could cut it with a knife, I mean, literally you could probably cut it with a knife because everywhere you turned, you saw you know, effects of this stress, you know, whether it was everybody who was taking medication for depression, anxiety, and, and all these proxies of stress, or in the conversations, or you saw them in the drive, or in the parties, every other conversation was about something that they felt that was putting incredible amount of stress in their life. And these were people with means. These were not people who were, you know, going from meal to meal and from rent to rent. They had, you know, significant means and they had houses and they had cars and, and all of these things, yet they were depressed and anxious and, and stressed at the core. And I just couldn't understand the mechanism. And then we ended up going to Afghanistan with the forces and with the World Bank. And the two of us met there. Yes. And in our journeys, something unbelievable became evident to me. You know, we're in the middle of nowhere these mud huts where the women are in the back in a yard. In fact, they spend most of their days in that yard and not, you know, not outside because of safety and other reasons and cultural issues. 
Yet all I heard was laughter. The same was true in Africa and other places as well. You know, the resources were limited. The possibilities were limited. Yet all I heard was laughter and jocularity and, and, and you know, social environment and no evidence of, at least no overt evidence of stress. So that really perturbed my perception of what creates stress and what is stress and how we actually approach stress. And the two of us had many conversations about this. That's correct. And based on my experience, when I would go and speak to these women, they had very simple lives. They had you know, their children, and they had very strong social bonds. Most family members, parents, brothers, and sisters, they actually lived together along with their husbands or wives, and they raised each other's children together in a very, you know, tribal form. And like you said, stress was essentially seen in very acute doses, especially when there was a physical harm or when people experienced pain or anything of that. But they always had ways of getting rid of it, which was fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, we're not saying that that's the optimal way of life. It's not. But what's intriguing is the perception or how the given stress was managed or, and obviously most often there was no mechanism. It was just a natural state. But that's a window into this whole process of stress and stress management. Now, the studies on stress are also kind of ambiguous. Certain studies show that stress, especially chronic stress as defined by certain factors, and we'll define that in a second, actually has significant effect on brain size, especially certain parts of the brain. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's when you and I got interested in studying this more. And when you look at different papers, there are different terminologies that are used for, you know, differentiating between lots of chronic stress and then short bouts of stress. There's a term called allostatic load, which essentially means the wear and tear of the body as a result of repeated chronic stress and how it affects the neuroendocrine system, the cardiovascular system, the emotional responses, and their effect on our blood vessels and the rest of the body. And over the years, people have studied the concept of allostatic load and stress on the brain. We'll stick to the brain today because it's our area. And, you know, look, you look at papers after papers, quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative essentially meaning, you know, how it affects different parts of the brain, whether it's loss of volume or atrophy or damage to, you know, blood vessels. And then qualitative obviously means, you know, how does it affect your response to different things in life? And when you look at different papers, you do see a negative effect of chronic stress on all of the brain but especially the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that is responsible for encoding memory, you know, converting short-term memory to long-term memory. It affects its structure and function. In some papers, they've mentioned that the increased levels of cortisol, which is a hormone that is associated with stress, it actually starts shrinking the hippocampus. And, you know, the hippocampus on average can shrink up to 14% compared to normal people or compared to people who are not exposed to stress. It's remarkable that we're now learning that it's not just the hippocampus also, though. I mean, it affects every system in the brain. Right. The neurotransmitters, you know, we talk about anxiety and depression. There's evidence that the set point or the baseline state 
of anxiety is actually set by the stresses that you experience throughout life, especially during childhood. Right. That's remarkable to know that you can kind of see how certain stress responses, especially if it's chronic, or if there is a one significant acute event, can completely reset the neurotransmitter system so your response to anxiety-driven situations completely changes. Mm. The same thing is true for depression. All of these systems are affected by your response to that stressor. Now, that's just the neurotransmitters. And you talked about the shrinking of the hippocampus. But there is so much more that even small bouts of stress do. Small bouts of stress affect the hypothalamus, which is the control center of the brain, or one of the main control centers of the brain. And hypothalamus then sends information to the pituitary. And pituitary is the master gland. Right. And that, and from pituitary, you have the growth hormone, you have insulin or insulin releasing processes, thyroid, you have oxytocin, all of these chemicals that affect every aspect of the body, even cortisol indirectly to adrenal system right. affected there. Now, what we know is that small little bouts of stress actually immediately affect that axis. So even small bouts of stress affect the entire system of the body, your neurotransmitter system, as well as your memory system. Mm -hmm. I mean, as much as we focus on all these other things, how could we not focus on this massive you know, process that reshapes your brain from minute to minute? Well, the reason is because we thought it was too complex. Right. We didn't understand it. And even when we started understanding it, it was too complex. How do we affect it? And as if that wasn't enough, now we know that there's this thing, or we've named it, which is good stress and bad stress. Right. And there's another layer. It's your perception of stress as well, which you can actually completely change something that's bad into good. So we'll get into all of this. But first, this good stress, bad stress. That's like a book we or a movie we can make, good stress, bad stress. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I think we should go for it. <laughs> it's a great topic. I think most of the times when you look at scientific papers and the common theme of stress you know, to just talking to families and to, to people around us, they always, stress is a bad word. Let's just mm -hmm. put it that way. It's a bad word. People want to get away from it. And when you open up magazines or books or any other, you know, media, it shows that the opposite of stress is good. You need rest. And there's this picture of a lady or a man lying down in, in bed or in a hammock on the beach that's anti-stress. And everybody's essentially forced to think that way, to live that way, to seek that in mm -hmm. their lives. But when you look at the whole concept from a neuroscientific perspective, you understand that there's much more to that. There's so much more nuance to that concept. Exactly. In fact, we promote good stress. We actually promote stress, a certain type of stress, because without that, the brain actually withers away. There's a concept of Wallerian degeneration that's for peripheral nerve, but there's an equivalent of that in the brain as well. So you've heard us say this many, many times, and we will say it again because we love it. It's our organs, brain. So it's 87 billion neurons, but as if that's not enough, each of them can make a few connections or as many as 30,000 connections. And the primary purpose of the brain is to collect data, to survive. 
we have sacrificed so much as far as evolution is concerned so that this brain can actually collect data. Reproduction without brain has been done. Plants reproduce without a brain or a central nervous system. So why did we need the brain? And that wasn't enough. We'll talk about the sleep thing in a, in a different talk, but we actually get paralyzed for eight hours a day and are so vulnerable. And the whole purpose of that sleep cycle is for the brain to grow, to rejuvenate, to cleanse itself. So this brain is quite costly. What is the benefit of it? The benefit is information gathering. In fact, it needs information as much as it needs oxygen, as much as it needs water, as much as it needs food. So information is one of its you know, feeding organs. So if it needs information, and the moment you stop it from getting information, or here's a bigger one, if a brain has been used to getting information, and we call it cognitive reserve, that means it has made many connections. It's vibrant, it's huge. It, every neuron has thousands of connections. That creates more protection than anything you can imagine. That cognitive reserve now, after, you know, let's say, retirement, this person or this brain starts not using its resources, it starts resting and not interacting with the environment, not interacting with the things that it was doing, not challenging itself. Now it's not getting information. That's telling the brain that all this energy that you're using, by the way, at its baseline, 25% or so of energy is being used by the brain. All this energy you're using, and now because of these connections, you're actually using more energy, that's not efficient. So it actually withdraws. It loses connections by the billions. And that brain that was so hungry, so resilient, so, so powerful, actually collapses faster than other brains. Yeah. Because it was used to high energy, it was used to many connections, and was used, more importantly, to information, and it's not getting it. I information or stimulation. And one of the proxies is hearing loss. Exactly. There's so many studies that show that people who have even mild amount of hearing loss actually have brain atrophy and they have higher risk for cognitive impairment, which tells you that if people are not hearing things, it's almost like being lonely. It's yes. almost like not being connected with your environment and not getting enough information. And so the brain, like you said, withers away. It's fascinating. It is, it is. And, and it loves information. So what we call good stress is lots of challenge to the brain. It's actually that, that information and challenge. Yes, it needs to be tested. It needs to be pushed. It needs to discover new horizons. And, and every way you can imagine those horizons, either physical horizons or cognitive horizons, it needs to constantly be in search. And in doing so, it maintains or actually grows these connections at any age. Talk about, you know, all these biohackers and these, <laughs> nowadays, all these conferences about biohacking and vitamins and this, this is all junk science. Sorry to say, it's complete junk science. And of course, we're gonna get some pushback from this, but and what they're gonna come with their, you know, one paper or, you know, some papers here and there, but it's junk science. Here is power. Power is when you maintain challenging life well into your 80s and 90s. That keeps those connections alive. In fact, it grows those connections. And here's the secret to good stress. The secret to good stress is that it's gotta be purpose-driven. Mm -hmm. And purpose basically means, you know, it's something that gives you joy. 
something that makes gives you meaning, something that keeps you moving towards that thing, whatever that thing is. And then yeah. that's good stress. I love the concept of idea density. Concept of idea density essentially means somebody who is very creative comes up with new ideas. So, you know, the brain is healthy enough and challenged to the point where thoughts and ideas come together and new information is created. And idea density is directly correlated with a better brain, better neuropsychological test scores and longevity. Absolutely. I mean, that connectivity is created by continuous challenge. And there's a nun study that actually revealed this. Uh, nuns that actually dedicated their brains, their body, their writings, their uh, their blood tests, everything. And, and of course, we're going to simplify the study, but a group of them passed away and they looked at their brains. They all had autopsies and the brains were inundated with plaques and tangles and vascular disease and everything. Yet before death, they were normal. They didn't have Alzheimer's. Another group that didn't have much pathology yet before death, you know, had dementia. What was the difference? When they looked at their writings, there was much more idea density, as you said. There was much more sophisticated vocabulary in those that survived despite the pathology in the brain and more complex lives and more challenged lives, I would presume, by extension. So that challenging life is critical. Yeah. And that's not without stress. I mean, the people that were protected were CEOs, people who have higher degrees. In, in research, we always use education as a proxy for brain challenge. Right. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, otherwise, poor Steve Jobs and Bill Gates had one year of college. So it's, but we use it as a, as a rough <laughs> right, um, a proxy. proxy. Mm -hmm. But let's take that, for example. Somebody who gets a PhD, that's not an easy life. Even despite sleeplessness, right. despite everything else, they actually have greater protection against Alzheimer's. They actually have greater protection against dementia. That's stress, right. tremendous stress. I mean, so do musicians and yes. artists and people who write or do public speaking. Exactly. Any situation that stresses you to stand up in front of people, to sweat a little bit, to let your heart rate go up, actually provides that resilience and you make those connections. And that's exactly what we're talking about, aren't we? Exactly. exactly. Well, you and I decided that if we ever make a band, we're going to call it Idea Density, right? It's a cool That's name. That's our band's name? It is. It All is. Right, it is. Um, well, <laughs> this band has a phenomenal singer. That would be you and a terrible guitar player. That would be me. No. But, I, but that's my my good stress, which is learning the guitar. But but speaking of that, you actually hinted on you know your heart rate going up and your pulse going up right. and your, you know, your breathing, your respirations going up. Well... Here's the second thing. So as if that's not enough that good stress is important and good stress is around things that are driven by your purpose, has direction, has timelines, and it could be as hard as you can imagine, but if it's driven by your purpose and it has clear timelines and success parameters, it actually builds your brain better than anything you can imagine. As much as the two of us are, you know, plant-based researchers and we have our higher degrees in, in nutrition and we love exercise and all of this stuff, but nothing is comparable to this kind of stress for growing the brain. Now, the other thing that you just brought up is this heart rate going up and respiration going up. Here's the interesting thing. So for many years, people thought it's just stress and that's that. But then they realized that it's actually perception of stress. So part of it is a stress that you actually define as my stress because I like it, it's my purpose. 
The other part is not even, if it's not even your purpose, but the way you see it, that is the biggest determinant of even life mortality. Yeah. And what it does. It almost sounds magical, doesn't it? You're basically saying that the way you feel about a stressful situation or the way you define it actually can change your biology, your physiology, which has been studied significantly. And, you know, there was this one study done at Harvard University. The paper came out in 2012. And this was essentially a study to understand the effect of social stresses on the body. And so they divided a group of people and they wanted them to go under significant amount of stress. One group was, you know, left alone and it was just the standard. They were told that they were going to go through a stressful situation and, you know, their heart rate was monitored and they also did some tests to find out the expansiveness or the expandability of their blood vessels and blood flow in general. And the other group, the intervention group, what the scientists did was to teach them to rethink stress. Basically, they were told that they needed to rethink their stress response as a good thing, as something that was helpful. As a challenge. Exactly. As a a heroic gesture. Right. So if you're breathing fast and you're breathing deep, it's not because of stress, but it's because your body needs more oxygen, your brain needs more oxygen, you're preparing yourself. For the challenge. For the challenge. If your heart is beating really fast and it's pounding, it's not because you're nervous, but it's because your brain and body is getting ready to receive all of that blood. So they went in through this experiment and people who viewed the stress response helpful for their you know, general performance, they were confident, they were less anxious, they were ready. And it was interesting that their physical response changed. The heartbeat was fast. But instead of blood vessel constriction, which is the usual, you know, whenever we're nervous, our blood vessels, they get very narrowed and the heart rate and our blood pressure go up because of that. But in these situations, in this particular study, the blood vessel actually started relaxing and dilating. And you see that kind of a biological response in moments of joy. Or in moments when you are brave and courageous, when you're facing something and you're ready for it. Or success. And so seeing the two sides of this response in the same kind of stressful situation, which changed by just the concept of definition of stress, was fascinating, was incredible. And it's wonderful to know that by just changing your mind about how you think about a stressful situation, you actually change your physical response too. So not only is it that stress is not always bad, that you can actually choose good stress and bad stress. So that's a passive process. You actually say that these stressors, you know, I want to learn a musical instrument and I'm going to be very good and I'm going to practice nine hours a day. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of stress. But that actually builds your brain because it's your purpose, it's time-bound and all that. So that's a passive process of managing stress. And then you actually identify the bad stressors, things that you have no control over that don't serve your purpose. You try to delegate, you know, eliminate and, you know, and reduce. But then here's a thing where 
even if the stressors you have no control over, by just changing your perception of it, you don't only change its effect on your emotions, and it does that. Your anxiety response goes down, your autonomic, but your physiology changes. Right. Your autonomic responses. Initially, you take that autonomic response, which is the heart rate beating fast, the hands getting clammy and, and wet, you know, uh, sweaty, and, and the respiration going up. You take that and you make it into a positive as a challenge thing. But later, that actually changes the physiology of autonomic system as well. On top of that, your blood vessels, instead of you know responding in a fight or flight kind of a thing where the vessels close because it's expecting a trauma, they actually expand. Yeah. And it's wonderful to know that this change, this biological shift can be the difference between a nervous breakdown or even a heart attack versus living a cognitively vibrant life well into your 80s, 90s and beyond, yes. like what we always say. So you you basically, we're saying that you choose to do one or the other. Exactly. And the wonderful thing is that that even mortality was changed with these data. I mean, they followed a group of people over nine years. And by just this definition of if the person, you know, people died, 180,000 people who had stress died. And when they looked at the data, what they saw was that it was actually their perception. Right. The stress levels were the same. Yes. But the people that had, you know, had written that it was highly stressful the same kind of activities. That the stress was bad for them. For bad for them, they actually had a much higher mortality. In fact, 20,000 individuals per year. Absolutely. And on the contrary, people who didn't perceive it as a bad thing, they actually didn't die any more than the rest of the population. Uh, this is remarkable. This gives you a means of controlling the, what appears to be uncontrollable. Of course, this concept has limits. If the stress is so profound and overwhelming, you can't define it out of existence. Agreed. You know? But for most of us, most of the stress that we experience is not at that unsurmountable you know, level. It's everyday small stresses that usually the ones that you can control, you can control and you increase the good stress. The others that you can't define it as the way that you want to define it as a challenge towards a higher goal or as a part of a bigger thing. By actually perceiving it a certain way, by giving it a certain language, initially it's contrived. Initially you're forcing it. Initially, like every habit, every time you reprogram a habit, it has to be repeated multiple times until the physiology catches up with the habit. And this is the same here. So by defining things as not stressful, even though it is, you know, in the past you've named it that. And by the way, we all know, I mean, I hate to bring, take it there, but we all know people who every small thing for them is, oh, this is terrible. I'm having a horrible day. And yeah. you look at it and it's like, wait a second, this is not that bad. And yet others who are overwhelmed and they seem joyous, happy, you know, highly achieving, and it comes down to that perception or that language that started maybe early on and just became their common vernacular and then it became their habit. Yeah. You always bring the example of the CEO of, um, of Virgin. Uh, Virgin Branson. Branson, yeah. And you say, you know, he has more than 300 companies. And when you look at him, 
He doesn't seem to be very stressed. I mean, he, talk, he talks about it. Yeah, yeah. He talks about management and delegation and things of that nature. And when you look at people at that level where they have so much on their plate and they're managing so much, obviously they're great managers, but their perception of those small elements is not, oh, this is bad. It's something like, this is great. I've done this. I take pride in this. It's a challenge for me. And they move forward. In fact, I'm going to say something really, I think, revolutionary. So what it is, is that I think that it's impossible to achieve highly without that higher tone of perception of stress. Meaning if you're not used to, or you don't have the internal language that changes what appears to other people to be stressful to good stress, there's no way that you can achieve highly. Because in order to achieve highly in anything, be it sports, being academics, be it social affairs, politics, you really have to go through a lot of stress. And if the language that you carry with you is one that says immediately that, oh, this is bad, this is terrible, there's no way that you can sustain that level. Impossible. The only way that you can actually sustain and, and achieve that is, first of all, if you start early or maybe later on reprogram the language within you to look at that stress as challenge, as heroic, as success-driven, as, as even if it's not in the same path as your ultimate goal, but it is going in that direction in some, you know, some way, shape, or form. And the only way that these people can achieve that highly, if they were able to do, and my favorite thing, you know, mental jujitsu on this, taking bad stress and reframing it, reshaping it, telling a different story in their own mind, that's the only way that you can achieve. I mean, running 300 companies? And it's not that he says that he's happy. I mean, the language and, and everything that he portrays actually demonstrates that he's there. And more importantly, if he wasn't having joy in that journey, it wouldn't be possible for him to have climbed the levels of perceived stress to achieve that level of success. In fact, in everything, in every, sports or otherwise. Right. So how do we bring that level of complexity in our daily life? Say, for example, for a lady, a woman, you know, who has children and works nine to five every single day, has a difficult commute, probably lives in Los Angeles. How do we bring that concept of complexity and challenge in our lives without anything boggling us down and, you know, focusing on increasing our brain capacity? It comes down to purpose again. We started with Afghanistan, and the purpose there is small. Well, I, I wouldn't call it small. It's, it's different. It's well-circumscribed. It's well-defined. It's their family. It's their children. It's their grandparents. Everybody's in the same you know, area and keeping that mechanism going. It's a, actually, in many ways, it's very easily controlled. That's the purpose, and the process goes forward, and the purpose has steps every day. Sometimes it changes, and, and it's what achieved and then the social interactions within that, and that's great. In a, in a modern life, it's much different. And it's good because with that, you can also achieve more. You can have a more complex purpose, not that that other purpose was, was inferior, but you can have the family element, which we do and others do, but you can also add other elements. But there has to be purpose because that purpose does two things. One is it's an anchor. That purpose, by the way, doesn't have to be something profoundly, you know, bombastic or great, like, you know, saving the rainforest or 
whatever. It's got to be something that has been driving you, has been pulling you, has been in your mind. Or even now, you actually decided that this is something that I would like to achieve. It has to have some challenge to it. It has to have multiple steps to it. I always bring up, you know, learning a musical instrument, learning a new language, learning, you know, how to manage right. a, a team, how to volunteering. All of these things are purpose-driven. And that purpose can actually pull everything together. So one thing it does is you actually create steps towards that, and there are challenging steps. When we did the meta-analysis on cognitive activity, yes. which is incredibly protective, at the core, there were three things, purpose, challenge, and complexity. So real life activities are complex. Video games on a screen for brain activity is not complex. So real life activities that are multidimensional, like musical instrument, you know, involves all of the brain is complex. Running a company is complex. Running a group or volunteering with a group is complex. So these kind of things are important. That purpose then pulls you and makes you brain or challenges your brain. And that challenge makes the connections. And given that it's, it's your purpose, you're enjoying it, you're being pushed, the brain is growing, and you have multiple steps to move on and on and on. Now, another thing about that is when you have that long-term anchor, let's say you're doing a job that you don't like, but this job is allowing you to have the resources to get to your purpose. Yeah. Here's the second part, that reframing, that renaming, or completely changing the language around that st stress from bad to good. You know, say, you, you know, we drive two hours from where we live in Redondo to Loma Linda, right. back and forth. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible stress. Very stressful. But it serves our purpose. Yeah. And it has become, although it's sometimes challenging, especially early in the morning, but it's become such an incredible joy. We, the two of us have gotten to create so many projects in the car. We've talked, we've uh, clarified our mind. We've actually done significant work and yeah. writing in the car. Not me. When I'm driving in the morning, she drives it on the way back. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> driver doesn't do it, but we have conversations. We do. That stressful thing actually turned into something positive. Or you can take that time in Redondo, as affluent as it is, and it's doing well with nutrition and lifestyle and everything else. The one thing that they're doing poor and or worse than the rest of the nation is stress. Right. And it's mostly related to driving. Right, right. So you can actually take that driving occasion, put, you know, educational tapes for your other purpose. I'm really glad that the conversation turned to this point because if you recall, we were talking about it the other day about, you know, what do you do? Do you move forward or do you let go if something becomes uncomfortable? And we came to the conclusion that it's better to chase meaning in life than to avoid discomfort. Yes. It's better to put yourself in a stressful situation connected to your goal and to your vision and your purpose in life than stepping out of the game and not being involved at all. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point of your brain. Uh, anything else is a, a death for this incredible brain. We are, you know, our research, yours is stroke and mine is dementia or cognitive decline. If we don't start and stop at this point, then we haven't done our job. You know, all these other scientists, they keep focusing on this little micronutrient and that micronutrient. Here's a macronutrient, <laughs> your perception of life. Right, Absolutely. That's something that nobody talks about. 
and these tools are critical to be given to everybody. Now, it's, I'm not saying that it's easy to inculcate and, and make it part of your life all the time, but if you have the general concepts that define good stress, define bad stress, and that's where in our household, there are whiteboards everywhere, so the kids go up on the whiteboard and you know write what their good stress and bad stresses are, very specifically, not generally, because generally it just stays there. Right. And then you know how to increase the good stress, but at the same time, the language of perception of stress has to be practiced. You know, when something is overwhelming you or, or pushing you too much and you can't get rid of it, you know, there's an opportunity to use a different kind of language to take on that challenge. Now, we were talking about Branson from Virgin and other people who have succeeded. None of them got to that without the challenge, without being pushed multiple times and without you know, the language that made them enjoy some of that challenge, if not all of it. Right. Because it would have been impossible for them to have continued repeatedly putting themselves through all that trauma if they hadn't created the language of enjoying that success Absolutely. or that challenge. Absolutely. I think um, when you look at individuals at that level, you always, we tend to see their successes most often. But, you know, when you listen to some of their conversations and they talk about, all of the things that they left behind because there was no joy in it, things that they put their heart and soul into it that they didn't succeed. And that, that point where you completely sever your relationship with that situation is also very important. But, you know, to support this conversation, I think what we're trying to say is see if a situation is connected to your purpose. If it is, then trust yourself with that trust, with that stress trust yourself that you can get your body and your mind ready for That's that. That's beautiful, yes. And the rest will follow. Exactly, exactly. And and you will develop the tools and then your brain, which has the tools, that's, that's a tool-making organ after all, will keep you in that path. And then the rest is you enjoying it. And even if you're not enjoying it, seeing the positive aspect of it along how it's connected ultimately to your purpose. Now, this is a complex thing. Yeah. I mean, we went through stress, redefining stress, defining good stress and bad stress, and defining the perception of stress and how to manipulate the perception of stress. Right. That's not just adding beans into the diet. I mean, I love beans. We love the, but it's complex. But I just wanted everybody to realize that we think that this is probably the most important aspect for brain health. Right. And we should all try to move away from this archaic concept of stress versus no stress. You know, either you're pulling your hair and banging your head against the wall, or you're in a hammock on a beach. Yes. <laughs> There's yeah. so much more in between, actually. There is so much more positivity in good stress, and that we should accept good stressful situation as a challenge and as a way of our minds increasing its capacity and allowing our body to get ready to meet up for that challenge. So just as a summary, let me kind of summarize what this redefining does to your body. When you redefine stressors, whether the ones that you can control or not control, now you're actually manipulating the language in your head. And over time, hopefully you will become the baseline language of how it perceives the world around it, you are affecting the neurotransmitters in the brain on how it will respond to anxiety-provoking situations. 
Remember, if it's work or if it's sports, how your body and your brain perceives anxiety and how it relates to it is the biggest determinant of success. That's a whole different talk. We, we, we'll, we'll get to that some other time, but it will change your baseline state of affect or you know, the worst, uh, the, the other end of the spectrum of that affect is depression and mania, but it will actually change that baseline. It will completely alter your hypothalamic pituitary axis and how it actually releases oxytocin, cortisol, growth hormone, insulin, and thyroid you know, after a while, not just for that one event, but across time. Do you see anything more powerful than that? By the way, that also directly affects your immune system. And the other thing it does is it actually resets your autonomic response, your fight or flight. That fight or flight is what affects you when you deal with the world. That fight or flight is what affects your arteries. That fight or flight is what affects long-term your, your heart. That fight or flight is actually ultimately what affects your mortality, how, you know, the, your, your death rate and everything else. So whether it's cancer through your immune response, whether it's heart disease through the vascular response, whether it's dementia when it, as, as it relates to the stressors and the uh, hippocampus shrinking, everything is ultimately affected through your response and your, your perception of stress. And more importantly, what's most important is how you see life, how you enjoy life, or the very joy of life is determined by that baseline language that filters the stressors in your life. Beautifully stated. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode when we come back and talk to you guys about another fun topic in neuroscience. Until then, we love you guys. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.